Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Russia is being accused of using food as a weapon of war, pushing up to 49 million people into famine. And this is all because of Putin's aggressive war against Ukraine and its impact on global food supply and global prices. The key issue is that Russia and Ukraine account for up to 12% of the total calories traded worldwide. This is largely through grains. And Africa is especially affected as some African nations rely on Russia and Ukraine for up to 80% of their food supply. I'm your host, James Rogers. This is the Warfare Podcast. And to try and help us understand all of this, we have Mark Cohen on the podcast. Now, Mark is a senior researcher for aid effectiveness at Oxfam. And the fascinating thing about Oxfam is that as an organization, it was created during the Second World War to help people caught up in the famine caused by that war. So I know you're going to find this one truly fascinating, so please go and drop us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. It really helps us to get out there to everyone who loves history. But here now is Mark Cohen on the history of food and war. Hi, Mark. Welcome to the Warfare Podcast. How are you doing? I'm doing well. Thank you very much, James. Good to hear. Well, thanks so much for taking the time to come on the podcast, because we've all been transfixed, almost like we can't look away from the ongoing crisis in Ukraine. And that's a crisis that is starting to have its impact felt closer to home with energy prices and this ongoing worry about an emerging food crisis, a scarcity in the ability to buy food and a hike in global food prices as a result of this. So I wanted to get you on the podcast to try and give us some context to this emerging food scarcity situation and how, in the first place, it's generated by war, by conflict. So could you explain to us why the war in Ukraine is causing this global food shortage? Sure. And let me preface what I'll say about that by saying that Food and war have a very intimate relationship across the course of human conflicts and human history. Uh, And all we have to do is think about, so what's the classical strategy for winning a war? Well, 
you lay siege to the enemy's cities. And when you lay siege to cities, you keep things from getting in and things from getting out, and food is primary among those. Couple that also with what Napoleon said about how an army travels. It does so on its stomach. So war and food are intimately connected and have been uh, since we've recorded the history of war. But looking at the current conflict, the issue arises in particular because the Black Sea region and Russia and Ukraine in particular are breadbaskets to the world, Russia being the world's now largest exporter of wheat. And those of us of a certain age remember when Russia was a major importer of wheat, but that has changed over the past 40 to 50 years quite dramatically. And and Ukraine, even more so, I think, is a major supplier. And we're not just talking about the region's and countries neighboring the Black Sea, but it gets pretty far away. For example, the Horn of Africa, where there are worries about famine in both Somalia and Ethiopia and South Sudan as well, all of that region imports substantial portions of its imported wheat from these two countries. So, When there's a conflict that involves these two countries and when the ports in Ukraine are basically not operating, that not only impacts the neighborhood, but it impacts countries rather far away. And uh, one could also mention, I, I mean, I said the Horn of Africa, but we can cross the Red Sea over to Yemen as well. So What we see in uh, both the Tigray region of Ethiopia and in Yemen, there are conflicts going on there that have disrupted agricultural production and caused very severe food insecurity. And then the ability to receive regular imports from the Black Sea region has also been disrupted. So food crises that already were happening in that part of the world have been hugely compounded by the situation in Ukraine. So is it fair to say that the current crisis is being caused by a mix of sanctions, of soldiers pillaging food sources, and by the disruption to food production caused by the war? But is Putin actually deliberately trying to cut off Ukrainian food supplies globally? There is some analysis along those lines, but we haven't seen a policy memo indicating that. I think there is certainly some coverage. And, you know, if one reads what the Ukrainian government is saying, uh, President Zelensky, that sort of thing is said. But on the other hand, one could say that Russia, as a major exporter, would like its own exports to continue, and there's disruption of the exports from both countries. And part of that is due not only to the conflict, but to quite short stocks in both countries. So, I mean, there are a lot of complicating factors, but whether this is a deliberate strategy on on the part of Russia or not... Uh, I mean, I don't think we have definitive evidence about that, although that is certainly, there are analysts who are saying this, and, you know, the Ukrainians feel that way, for sure. They, uh, Ukraine's ability to export because of the 
ports being closed by the war. That is definitely not happening. And there are certainly accounts in the media of existing stocks of Ukrainian grain being seized by Russian troops. But the other factor is that conflict has disrupted the ordinary marketing system in Ukraine very substantially. I mean, the the entire economy of Ukraine has been disrupted. So one could say, whether it's deliberate or incidental, there has been a tremendous disruption to this country that has been the breadbasket, some would say, of the world for quite some time. Well, your organization, Mark, Oxfam, was established in Oxford, England, in part to help relieve human suffering from famine when wars like this occur, hence Oxfam, Oxford famine. So what war was Oxfam established in order to to react to, in order to, to help alleviate the suffering from? Yes. Thank you, James. I mean, our origin story is about a quite similar situation. And let me just add parenthetically that uh, that our name Oxfam, for those of a certain age, this may resonate. So we were the Oxford Committee for Famine Relief, and the cable address was Oxfam. Most people these days don't send cables, but uh, back during the Second World War, when there was no email, that was the rapid form of communication. And so the cable address, Oxfam, for Oxford Committee for Famine Relief became the name of the organization. So in any event, we originated during the Second World War, as I said, and the concern was especially about Greece because Greece was occupied by the Nazis and there was similarly a tremendous disruption, destruction of infrastructure, displacement of farmers, very much like what we're seeing in Ukraine today. And the concern was with the Allied blockade and the harsh measures imposed by the Nazi occupiers, Greek citizens and the residents of Greece were unable to access adequate food. And in fact, during the years 1941 and 1942, there was a famine in Greece And Oxfam and many similar committees in England and in the United Kingdom more generally were established to undertake efforts to get food to the people in Greece. So that is how Oxfam came to be in the early 1940s. And that has been a concern of ours uh, ever since that, you know, human beings, whatever the circumstances, need to eat to live. And so One could say it's part of the humanitarian imperative, which goes back, of course, to the 19th century and Henri Dunant, who was the founder of the Red Cross, Red Crescent movement. But we very much owe our origins to trying to prevent famine, trying to prevent people from starving, regardless of the circumstances in which they find themselves. Well, isn't this a dangerous job for Oxfam? You're effectively putting yourself in between two warring parties and breaking a blockade. Is this something that does become immensely dangerous, or is it usually agreed between the two warring parties that there is this humanitarian corridor that's created to relieve the suffering in war zones? One would like to say that that is the norm, 
if we look at the general problem, unfortunately, we can say it's not the norm. I mean, on the one hand, if we look at international humanitarian law, the the laws of war, and also international human rights law, it's well established that there is a, a, a right to food, a right not to starve, a right to be free from hunger. So the international legal framework says that, you know, regardless of what a political or military dispute is, civilians should not be subject to deliberate starvation. However, if we look at how wars are conducted, one can say that it's generally accurate that is frequently a tactic and perhaps even a strategy of warring parties. It is possible to negotiate with uh, the warring parties in both uh, civil wars and interstate wars to create humanitarian corridors, what you mentioned, to allow the flow not only of food, but other necessities, uh, medicine, the evacuation of sick and wounded civilians and also sick and wounded soldiers. But that is more art than science. And we absolutely point to international humanitarian law and international human rights law as the framework that should govern this that needs to be upheld. But unfortunately, the reality is it's often difficult to get humanitarian corridors established. And then once they're established, to have them maintained because, well, as a general from my country, uh, William Sherman said, war is hell. And I think that remains the reality and the technology uh, 150 years after General Sherman said that has, has become even more terrifying. So that's the reality we deal with. And you mentioned it being dangerous work. I mean, it's obviously dangerous work for the civilians caught in the crossfire and trapped in war zones. Extremely dangerous uh, civilian casualties are something we see in conflicts. But it's also dangerous to try and engage in humanitarian work. I mean, that's also a reality that we face. And I have colleagues who have been killed trying to carry out humanitarian activity. I mean, recently in Syria, for example, uh, some of my colleagues were killed, I would say not deliberately, but improvised explosive devices uh, don't really ask where you're from. They just blow you up. So it is hazardous work, and we know this when we go into it. If you've always wanted to know more about some of the key events that shaped the medieval period and the modern world, then Gone Medieval from History Hit is the podcast for you. From this, the king ordered all the Danish men who were in England to be killed because he'd heard a rumor that they were trying to topple him. They seemed to have been beheaded one by one in some kind of systematic manner. To this, the stakes are so high. Even when she first appears on the scene, Joan says, I've got one year to do this. So she knows that this is going to come to a sticky end. With a whole lot of this in between. The knightly class is a group of people who have been chosen by God. Armor is a physical proof that that's literally true. With guests lined up at the drawbridge, it's time to let them in and begin the feast for your ears that is Gone Medieval, the podcast from History Hit. Together, my co-host Dr. Kat Jarman and I, Matt Lewis. We've gone medieval and we're waiting for you to join us. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. 
At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort. So you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Well, I was trying to rack my brain a little bit to look back through history to try and find some examples that could help us understand the impact of famine on countries undergoing conflict, but also those broader international implications, like we've mentioned. And I was thinking back to Gallipoli, for example, an entire campaign during the First World War that was fought to try and open the Dardanelles Straits and to try and get that Russian wheat out into the global market to try and make a more robust global market and not affect the entirety of global sales and and food sales and economics. But could you perhaps offer some more examples throughout the 20th or 21st century that really show this impact of food scarcity during conflict, either internally within those countries or how it's affected the globe? Yeah, I think a very good example of a local conflict where this has happened would be the Civil War in Sudan uh, that started in 1983 and continued for some two decades after that and ultimately resulted in the independence of South Sudan. I mean, that was an excellent example of very explicit efforts uh, to use food as a weapon and really to try and starve out the enemy and those civilians who either supported the enemy or were under the governance of the enemy. So so you had, and particularly the former government of Sudan, which is no longer in power, having a deliberate strategy to do that, and many civilian deaths. And really, you know, there was a carrot effect as well as the stick. That is, if you will support your government, you will have access to food, but if you support the rebellion, you will not. That is perhaps uh, almost paradigmatic in a civil war. So sorry, Mark, is what you're talking about there, is is that deliberately manufactured political famines as a tactic of war to compel those against you to, to do your will? 
Yes, I think it's quite fair to say that that's what happened there. And so what sort of impact did that have? What sort of levels of death and injury and disease were caused as a result of this manufactured famine? Well, it had a devastating impact. And there's a book by Alex DeWall called Darfur Famine That Kills that talked about the mid 1980s. I mean, this was not the more recent and ongoing conflict in Darfur, but this was during, I mean, and not really in South Sudan, but it was in another area where conflict led to famine and famine uh, led to devastating malnutrition, disease, and uh, very high death rates among the civilian population. And so I think the consequences for civilians and non-combatants are are devastating potentially. And when this is a deliberate strategy, we can see that it has a high death toll and perhaps equally important to that high death toll. So if children under the age of five suffer severe malnutrition, even if they survive, their cognitive abilities, their performance in school, and their lifetime earnings are reduced. So I mean, there are long-term consequences as well as, you know, death of children and adults both, but there's also, I mean, a generation, uh, its human potential is lost as well. So the consequences are really catastrophic of these kinds of strategies. And I think that's an example. Another example I would point to, one that really had worldwide consequences. So during the the first Gulf War, the one in 1991, which involved Kuwait being invaded by Iraq and then a large international coalition opposing that invasion. So there were sanctions imposed against Iraq. There was a, after the formal end of the war, there was then a no-fly zone created uh, to protect Kurds who were being threatened by the Iraqi government. But you also had a huge number of migrant workers who were expelled from the region because of the conflict. So, I I mean, you had cascading effects of this. Uh, You had the migrant workers first going into displaced persons camps, and they were not considered refugees because they were migrant workers who had lost their ability to work in both Iraq and Kuwait and even some of the other neighboring countries. You then had the loss of their remittances in the countries uh, of origin of those migrant workers. You had the the sanctions and the conflict uh, creating food insecurity problems in uh, Iraq itself. You had extraordinary efforts then by the international community, I mean, airdrops of food and and various other activities to try and provide food. So there was a huge humanitarian operation around this conflict, but everything that happened there was drenched in politics. I mean, the tremendous uh, political will on the part of the international community to protect and provide assistance to the Kurdish population in Iraq. But at the same time, I mean, that was all part of the opposition to the Iraqi government. So, 
you know, the intervention was definitely humanitarian, but it was very politicized as well. And it had far-reaching consequences, as I said. So this tremendous loss of remittances and then this large population eventually going back to South and Southeast Asia of the migrant workers, uh, the migrant workers going into camps but not being considered refugees. So then they weren't the responsibility of the United Nations High Commissioner for Refugees and a different UN agency had to come in. And uh, I mean, it was just a huge number of people affected by this and the consequences in terms of hunger, in terms of humanitarian health needs, uh, both within Iraq itself and for the displaced migrant workers. I mean, huge numbers of people affected there. So and consequences that I think perhaps weren't thought of by the military planners. So uh, there's also sometimes, probably more than sometimes, I think it's fair to say that does the military strategy and the management of the humanitarian crisis, are those well thought out or more likely the humanitarian consequences are viewed as sort of collateral damage that then has to be mopped up by the humanitarian agencies of the United Nations, NGOs like my organization, and hopefully local actors like the local Red Cross or Red Crescent Society and other local responders. But the norm is that the military planners don't think about that until after the fact. Well, it may well be deemed as collateral damage, but that's exactly why it's important that we talk about these issues and raise these issues, because they are the hidden local and international food implications of these human-made disasters that are warfare. And linking into this, Mark, as I, as I look to the future and I start to research climate conflicts myself and I start to look at the impact of climate change on triggering conflicts around the world... Do we start to see this come full circle as climate change applies pressures on food production within societies? Let's say, for example, in the Sahel, in Niger, between Niger and Chad, where the Chad Lake Basin is reducing dramatically inside and reducing fish stocks. Do we start to see it's those regions of the world now that will have contestation over water security, over food security, and we could see wars triggered over access to food? Yes, I think there's a growing academic literature looking at the relationship between climate change and conflict. And I think the factors you've mentioned are part of what's covered there. The major issue is climate change. I won't say it's likely to cause this because I think we're seeing it already. It causes people to move. I mean, they can no longer earn a living in their home area often because of lack of water, lack of productivity of the land because of chronic drought or cycles of drought and flood. So people move, but then that too frequently causes competition with the people who were already living in the area to which people move. And that may and often does cause conflicts not necessarily violent conflicts, but there's potential for violence to arise. And there's a lot of discussion of whether, now I mentioned Darfur, the more recent conflicts that we've seen in Darfur. There is a school of thought that says that climate change 
is the primary cause. But whether or not we accept that, it certainly is a compounding factor. I mean, we can talk about changes in land use between a time when pastoralists and settled farmers shared the land to now where settled farmers are farming year-round, and so pastoralists no longer have access to that land. That also has caused some disputes and conflicts. There are also analysts who point to the different ethnic groups not getting along. But let's say if we put all those factors together and the fact that climate change has dramatically affected the ability to earn a livelihood in that region, I think it is definitely a compounding factor. And the Sahel that you mentioned, I mean, we can see a, I don't want to say perfect storm because the weather's dry, but if we look at climate change, if we look at conflicts that are already going on in that region, uh, uh, particularly in Mali, but but also in Burkina Faso and Niger, and you mentioned the Lake Chad Basin, and we look at the economic disruptions caused by COVID-19, uh, the pandemic, you put all that together and there is a looming hunger crisis. I mean, I mentioned the Horn of Africa already, but also in West Africa, we see very high levels of acute food insecurity there. And you put all these things together, it's a food insecurity nightmare. And uh, climate change, uh, from what we read from the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, I mean, its relationship to food and agriculture, uh, it is not good for achieving food security. There is also the fact that agriculture accounts for a high level of greenhouse gases, but we can adapt our agricultural practices to reduce that. But climate change is also going to impact our ability to grow food using our current techniques. And so we do need to adapt in the face of climate change. We, in my sentence, being the human race, so this tight squeeze is caused by a perfect storm of climate contagion and conflict coming together to cause major instability in food production, export and access around the world. And all of this is being added to by the current war in Ukraine. So this leaves me with one final question, Mark. What can world leaders commit to to reduce this impact of conflict on food security? And is there anything that we can do? Well, yes, there is a lot that the international community can do. I think there is a discourse now uh, in international circles and within the United Nations about what is called the nexus. And I know that sounds like a Keanu Reeves film, you know, The Matrix and the Nexus, but no, it's the nexus between development humanitarian action, and peace building, and really looking at that as a broad continuum where action occurs in each of the segments. It may be a greater emphasis on development activity or on humanitarian activity or on peace building activity or some combination across the three areas, but really trying to link actions across that nexus. And I think one of the keys is investment in resilience. So 
for low-income rural communities, ensuring that they are resilient to climate change. But then the peace-building aspect becomes important because um, we see this intimate relationship that I talked about at the beginning between war and food. And so there's an example of where development and peace are intimately related. And also, I think the humanitarian aspect is important and really engaging, as I mentioned uh, just a moment ago, the local responders, uh, ensuring that they are able to operate, uh, that they are supported by the international community when necessary, both financially and if the scale of the emergency is beyond their capacity, which it sometimes is in a violent conflict, that there is the appropriate international support when necessary, but really ensuring that there's investment in local humanitarian response in poor countries. And certainly when we're talking about a breadbasket to the world like the Black Sea region, I mean, that the flow of food needs to be maintained. Whatever the disputes between the countries in that region, the normal export channels ought to be operating. And when that doesn't happen, the international community needs to make sure that organizations like the World Food Program of the United Nations, that WFP has adequate resources. And of course, they're a food aid agency. So when prices go up, as we've seen them uh, do quite dramatically, I mean, hitting an all-time high in March of this year, then WFP needs more resources. I mean, $1 buys less food than it did before March. So the donor community, the wealthy countries of the world, and not only the Western countries, but I would say the Gulf countries as well, need to make sure WFP has adequate resources. And what can we do as citizens? Well, I think um, encourage our governments to try to make all those sorts of investments, but as citizens, push our governments to do the right thing. And I think especially, you know, the rhetoric about everyone having a right to food, uh, encourage our governments to uphold that. Well, it's certainly a contentious political issue at the moment, Mark. I know that President Putin has emphasised that Russia is ready to contribute to overcoming this global food crisis we're talking about so Russia can export grain and fertilisers. But, of course, that's an exchange for a lifting of Western sanctions, which is all in place to try and put pressure on Russia to leave Ukraine. So all of this is the sad politics of war, and all we can hope is that a peace agreement is reached as soon as possible. If you were going to recommend to any of our listeners where they should go next to find out more about this, either books or websites, where would you send them, Mark? Well, I think, as they say, the mainstream media has been doing a good job in covering this. Uh, BBC, for example, in the UK, the New York Times in my country, the US, The Guardian also in the UK, I think for those who are interested in a deeper dive on conflict and war, there is a website called ACLED or ACLED that has daily updates of what violent conflict around the world looks like. And then the World Food Program, in addition to 
its humanitarian activities, also has done some very excellent briefs looking at the impacts of the conflict on global food security. And of course, I would be remiss if I didn't encourage listeners to go to Oxfam.org to see what we're saying about the humanitarian situation. Well, Mark, all that leaves me to say is thank you so much for your time, and you're always welcome on the Warfare Podcast. Thank you very much, James. Pleasure to speak with you. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. And before you go, remember, as a Warfare listener, you get a special discount at History Hit. Subscribers get access to blissfully, uninterrupted, ad-free podcasts and thousands of hours of history documentaries. You've got everything from the American Revolution to my own documentaries like Traces of War, Weapons of War and 24 Hours in Normandy, where I follow in the footsteps of the Green Howards on D-Day from their beach landings to being awarded the Victoria Cross and all the way through their first day where they made it seven miles inland further than any other British or American unit. So head over to historyhit.com forward slash subscribe or follow the link in the show notes and use the code WARFARE to get 50% off your next three months. That's the code WARFARE to get 50% off. And if you're an Apple listener, you can subscribe for new ad-free episodes within the app. So give it a go. I know you're gonna love it.